This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the Grim Reaper is having a field day. On Tuesday, we set a record as the state health department reported 191 new fatalities from COVID-19. On Wednesday, we shattered that record with 217 new fatalities. Florida's death toll from the pandemic has reached at least 6,457. What did the governor have to say about the rising death toll? Not a thing. But he did have time for a roundtable discussion on reopening schools that went on for almost an hour. Many students will suffer academic and physical and mental health consequences if they're not able to get back into the classroom. Uh, I think that that's already happened. The governor made his pitch at a school that specializes in kids with developmental and intellectual disabilities. Teachers at the Paul B. Stevens School in Clearwater told him they're anxious to get back to the classroom. I am thrilled that we will be going back to school and that I'll be back in the classroom. I'm confident that the recommendations of all the officials have the students' best interests at heart, and not just their academic, but their health interests and their social-emotional interests at heart. COVID-19 is not the only threat on the horizon. The governor says they're tracking a tropical system headed this way. It is possible that there are impacts in the state of Florida, um, and we see those impacts as anywhere from I mean, kind of severe storms all the way up to potential hurricanes. If we do get a hurricane, the power companies say it will take more time to get the lights back on because their repair crews have to engage in social distancing and they cannot count on assistance from other states that don't want to send their people to a virus hotspot. Today on Sunrise In Depth, you'll hear how the power companies are dealing with all those unpaid bills that have been piling up during the pandemic. We'll resume collections at the right time, but even then, we will not return to business as usual. There will be a transition and we will continue to help and to work with our customers. This connection always has been and always will be a last resort. 600,000 Floridians are now behind on their utility payments. We'll also have your calendar of events, along with the stories of two Florida men dealing poorly with the COVID crisis. One opened fire in a hotel lobby because of social distancing. The other used federal stimulus money designed to protect the paychecks of his employees on dating websites, jewelry, clothing, high-end hotels, and a Lamborghini. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Thursday, July 30th. One day after the state set a record for COVID-19 fatalities, Florida did it all over again. The health department reported 217 new deaths Wednesday. That brings the statewide total to 6,457. Almost 9,500 new cases were reported Wednesday. More than 450,000 Floridians have been infected since the pandemic began. That's more than 2% of the state population. While the death toll was rising, the governor was holding another roundtable discussion on COVID. He never mentioned those fatalities because Ron DeSantis was trying to sell parents on the idea of reopening schools. It happened on the campus of the Paul B. Stevens School in Clearwater, a center for ESE. That stands for Exceptional Student Education, what used to be called special ed. The governor says these kids need to be back in the classroom because distance learning does not meet their needs. Teachers in the schools, they had to adapt. And I think that they, 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 they did a great job. I think our performance in distance was better than, than most other states, I would say. But at the same time, you know, we just have to uh, realize that, that there are limitations when it comes to distance learning. And particularly when you're talking about uh, school children uh, that have special needs, uh, because that face-to-face -face interaction is vital uh, for their nourishment and for their well-being. So we do believe fundamentally in providing parents with the choice and that choice can be to continue with distance learning, 
uh, or uh, choose to go back into the classroom uh, where your students can get face-to-face -face instruction. Uh, many students will suffer academic and physical and mental health consequences if they're not able to get back into the classroom. Uh, I think that that's already happened. It's going to require uh, some, more, some more study, but uh, I don't think we can say that the trends in any of those things will have been positive since mid-March here or anywhere in the country. Um, you know, we also understand when you have children with unique abilities, uh, there is even a greater gap between what can be accomplished in distance learning versus the vital instruction that takes place and a whole variety of things um, here in a place uh, like the Paul B. Stevens ESE Center. And we have 400,000 Florida students with special needs that rely on in-person delivery of critical support and resources. Um, and again, the virtual is very, very difficult to work uh, when you're in those situations. And so having an in-classroom option uh, is vital to the needs of millions of people, both parents and students, throughout the state of Florida. Joyce Vitrelli is a teacher at the Stevens ESE Center and her daughter is a graduate. She says the services they provide for students with disabilities cannot be matched at home. I am thrilled that we will be going back to school and that I'll be back in the classroom. I'm confident that the recommendations of all the officials have the students' best interests at heart and not just their academic, but their health interests and their social emotional interests at heart. I think um, one of the things that maybe gets overlooked is that this is such a safe environment for our children. Um, we have unfortunately experienced that outside of school can be a very unsafe environment. My daughter has, has been a personal victim of that. And I want to have my students back here because I'm not just their educator, I'm their protector and I'm their caregiver and I partner with their families and we need to have our kids back at school, our students, so that we can help and support the families in ensuring not only the academic success of their children, but also to make sure that they're safe and to provide them with care and to be another set of eyes on them, to make a commitment to them that we're here for them, to take care of them educationally and, and just to keep them safe. And I think that parents really need to be confident that when their students come back, that they will be safe here. And I believe that that's true across the board. Lindsay Sinclair has a 10-year-old son with autism. She wants him back in class because he's been regressing since schools closed in March. We are lucky not to have medical complications within our immediate family. So for us, the right choice is to go back to school in person so that he can have the in-person occupational therapy, speech therapy, um, which to us is very important. Um, I'm very concerned about any social, emotional, and behavioral consequences for staying at home long term. So that's the choice that we have decided to make. But there is no right or wrong choice. That's something every family has to decide for themselves. And frankly, that's the point. It's up to parents to make the best decisions for their own children. As the father of a child with Down syndrome, I can assure you everything they claim is true. School really is the best place for kids with intellectual or physical disabilities. It's where their friends are. It's their community. And it's more than just education. School is where they get a wide range of services, like physical therapy, speech therapy, and occupational training that help them not just to survive, but to thrive in the outside world. Yet I can't help thinking that the governor and the education commissioner are exploiting these kids to push their reopening agenda. In effect, using disabled children as Judas goats to lead the rest of Florida's kids 
back to the classroom. COVID-19 isn't the only disaster looming over Florida right now. There's this little matter of a tropical system in the Caribbean that could reach South Florida by the weekend. Governor DeSantis says it's too soon to tell exactly where the system is headed, but he's advising Floridians to have a plan and stock up on supplies. Uh, we are monitoring tropical cyclone 9 very closely. Uh, it looks like we're not going to know the storm's exact strength and trajectory uh, for a couple more days. It has not yet been a, an organized storm. Uh, we have not seen the organization, which obviously is going to tell you a little bit more about the severity and the direction. It is going to be passing over potentially a lot more land, which could potentially break it up as well. Uh, so it's very uncertain. I know they have different cones now that are out there. Uh, we, we still are, are not at the point where we really could, uh, I think, credibly anticipate a trajectory. But I do think it is possible that there are impacts in the state of Florida, um, and we see those impacts as anywhere from I mean, kind of severe storms all the way up to potential hurricane. Uh, so people just need to uh, have their hurricane plan. Uh, they need to secure seven days worth of supplies, food, water, and medicine, just like you're told to do at the beginning of hurricane season. Uh, listen to your, your local officials and uh, go visit floridadisaster.org slash get a plan for more information on how to prepare. But we'll be watching this very closely and we'll be providing updates um, as the situation requires. Notice the governor said you should have seven days worth of supplies. They used to recommend three, but the COVID crisis has changed that by constricting the supply chain. And if the power does go out, Christopher Chapel with Florida Power and Light says it will take longer to fix because of COVID. We are very conscious, as the current forecast reminds us, unfortunately, that we're in the midst of storm season. This year we know that we can't count on as many outside resources as usual. We'll need to space out crews and we'll have fewer people spread across more staging sites. That means it is likely to take longer to restore power after a storm than it would otherwise. But as I mentioned at the outset, we've been planning and drilling for this since January. Given all that we've been through in 2020, we're certainly praying that nature spares us. But we're also very prepared and we're ready to execute if necessary. The latest projections from the National Hurricane Center show Florida in the forecast cone of the system, which has a 90% chance of becoming a tropical storm over the next few days. The COVID crisis is costing the power companies in Florida. They've stopped disconnecting people during the pandemic, which helps temporarily, but the debt keeps piling up. Next up on Sunrise, a deep dive on the cost of delinquent utility bills. Florida Hospital Association members are safe, ready, and equipped to care for all Floridians. As our hospitals resume elective procedures, ensuring the safety and well-being of our patients, employees, and communities remains our first priority. Contact your local healthcare provider for information on visitation policies, access restrictions, and how to get needed care safely. Please visit the Florida Hospital Association at fha.org/covid for more information. Welcome back to Sunrise. When the pandemic began back in March, Florida's major utilities stopped disconnecting people who failed to pay their power bills, and nearly 600,000 electric customers in Florida are now behind in their monthly payments. Leslie Quick with Duke Energy Florida says they have almost 150,000 delinquent accounts that owe a total of almost $18 million. We're going to continue uh, supporting our customers through this pandemic. We are doing things uh, every day to support our customers. Uh, we have enabled some online tools um, so customers can call our call, call centers and get set up on payment arrangements. But uh, we have also added a new tool where um, 
we are texting and uh, emailing customers to encourage them to make a payment and also giving them the ability to sign up for payment arrangements online. So this is something we did not offer in the past. So customers don't necessarily have to call the call center anymore, but they can also do this through their uh, through a web, our website. We are trying to reach as many customers as we, can, as we can that we know are delinquent or in arrears, and we're doing this through multiple channels. Um, we're also um, working with the, the agencies and connecting our uh, customers to funding. Um, even when customers click on links in our text, it also gives them the opportunity to click on a link to uh, connect them with assistance agencies but also um, allow them the opportunity to set up, um, set themselves up on a deferred payment arrangement. Florida Power and Light and Gulf Power, which are owned by the same company, have more than 350,000 delinquent customers. Christopher Chappell with FPNL says they owe almost $100 million. Since the crisis started, in addition to our normal communications, we've made almost 3 million incremental proactive efforts to communicate with customers in arrears. We mailed them, we've emailed them, auto-called them, and had customer care agents call. We have a very simple message for our customers right now. Call us so we can help you. The outreach has had an impact. For FPL, the number of accounts in arrears in April was up 60% year-over-year from 2019. At the end of June, that year-over-year number was down to 35%. That still leaves around 258,000 residential and 22,000 CNI customers in arrears. And though we've been successful in bringing the number of customers down in arrears in relative terms, the passing of time, of course, increases the dollar amount of the arrears. What was 30 days old in April is now 90 days old and brings with it four months worth of accrued bills. We've been proactive from day one, and we've communicated effectively with our customers to the point that we've kept the number of customers in arrears essentially steady since April. That's obviously important and a good part of our story, but the other side of the coin is problematic. Those customers in arrearages have been building balances for months. And to state the obvious, the higher the balances, the harder it is for customers to pay them. And in turn, the more bad debt we will accrue. For the month of April through June, incremental bad debt is estimated to be 15.8 million for FPL and 5.3 million for Gulf. To be clear, these numbers exclude previous months and they exclude the balances accrued in July. So the numbers are already higher and continuing to grow. Let me wrap up by saying this. Our men and women are absolutely committed to the mission. They are working tirelessly to meet this unique challenge. We'll continue to do the right thing for all of our customers. We'll continue to help those who need help. And we'll continue to be mindful that the vast majority of our customers are paying on time. We're committed to striking the right balance. We'll resume collections at the right time but even then, we will not return to business as usual. There will be a transition, and we will continue to help and to work with our customers. For those who are experiencing hardship, we will waive late fees, we will make payment arrangements, and we will connect them to local assistance agencies. This connection always has been and always will be a last resort. Tampa Electric has about 92,000 accounts that are past due. People's gas, about 34,000. But don't feel too bad for the utilities. They have a guaranteed rate of return. Some of the costs will eventually be written off, but paying customers may have to pay extra to take care of the shortfall. A state appeals court says R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company is responsible for continuing to pay more than $100 million per year to the state because of a landmark legal settlement between Florida and cigarette makers back in 1997. 
RJR claimed it should not have to make payments to the state for four brands of cigarettes, Salem, Winston, Cool, and Maverick, that it sold to another company. But back in June, Florida Solicitor General Ahmed Agarwal told the 4th District Court of Appeal that a deal is a deal, and Reynolds cannot eliminate its liability by simply selling off those brands. Reynolds should not be allowed to unilaterally effectively extinguish its liability without the consent, at a minimum without the consent of the state, regardless of whether consent of the other parties is required. And that, that really does invoke the core common law principle that informs the interpretation of this contract, which, as opposing counsel noted, is an undisputed common law principle that a party cannot get out of its contractual obligations by resorting to the simple expedient of selling all or part of its business to a third party. And that's exactly what the court said. In a unanimous decision, the appeals court ruled that a contract is a contract, and Reynolds continues to be liable under the deal it signed with the state more than 20 years ago. The Revenue Estimating Conference meets at 9 today to talk about proceeds from the Florida Lottery. The Department of Environmental Protection holds an online meeting at 2 to talk about development of stormwater rules. The Daytona State College Board of Trustees holds an online meeting at 2. The State Revenue Estimating Conference meets at 2. Joe Biden is expected to be among the speakers during the Miami-Dade County Democratic Party's online Blue Gala event. That's at 7 p.m. Other speakers will include the Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed, Congresswoman Donna Shalala, State House members Javier Fernandez, Nicholas Duran, Cindy Polo, Keone McGee, plus the State Democratic Party Chairwoman Terry Rizzo. Finally today, it's time to check in with a couple of Florida men who put the duh in Florida. A Florida man is accused of opening fire in a Miami Beach hotel because he was upset that two people were not social distancing. Police say Douglas Marks of Miami confronted a woman and her son in the lobby of the Crystal Beach Suites. He told them they had to leave because they were not social distancing. Witnesses say Marks then retrieved a handgun and fired several shots. Now, he admits to the shooting, but Marks told police he was being followed, and those were warning shots. He's facing several charges, including aggravated assault with a deadly weapon and discharging a firearm in public. Finally, a Florida man who received almost $4 million through the Paycheck Protection Program is busted after using the money to buy a $320,000 Lamborghini. The Italian sports car is not on the list of permissible expenses under the Small Business Administration Loan Program. Investigators say David Hines of Miami-Dade also spent thousands of dollars on dating websites, jewelry, clothing, and high-end hotels in Miami Beach. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.